No, we're just doing how great is our God. Oh, did you just run? He just ran into the chair. You good, bro? You broke the chair. Look at it. The whole thing's crooked. You broke the whole thing. You're so strong. I'm just joking, Timmy. You're good. Are you all right, buddy? I know. You're good. I was just teasing with you. Are you good? He crushed it. All right. This uh, we have it in G, in A, I mean, which is a hair high. Himself in life, and darkness tries to hide, and trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice, and how great. See how great, 
great is our God. And usually I'll stop playing there, but there's only three of us in here. So uh, I'd let them just sing it. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. You wrestle with the sinner's restless heart. You lead us by still waters into mercy. And nothing can keep us apart. Oh, no, record this will be. So remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your promise, oh God. It's nice and loud. That's... That's good. Now, you don't have to turn it down. You can turn it up. It's fine with me, Lindsay. We can all go out and sit in the parking lot. I can still sit here and talk, and everybody can just hear it just fine. I like it. I like it. I know that uh, Ben has already asked you to uh, be thinking about, pray over our students, uh, the mission the mission team that's, that's uh, away right now. A couple of other things that we need to keep in mind as we go through this month. <clears throat> I will, we will, be here next Sunday, uh, and I, I will teach a lesson on the sufficiency of Scripture, the sufficiency of the light. After that, though, on the 20th, Glenn Shady from the Christ, uh, French Christian Mission is going to be here. Uh, and he's going to have a chance to uh, kind of talk to and, and keep us up to date on everything about uh, his mission, him and Jessica. And then on the 27th, we have our picnic, and I'm excited about this day because that's our student Sunday. And, and they do everything, and they, they run the show, and they teach, and they serve, and they do all this stuff. Uh, and they're going to be a part of our worship and, and uh, everything. And so I'm really excited about that. Now, as excited as I am about it, we may miss it. We're, the plan is for us to be back the day before. Well, you know how plans go. Uh, sometimes things happen. Um, but I'm, I hope that we'll have a chance to be here for that and, and uh, be able to, to participate in it or be able to see it. Um, the day before, Saturday, on the, on the 26th, 26th uh, we kind of set up for this big day. We have a, you know, set up for the picnic and having all kinds of fun and all that stuff. I'm usually a part of that, and I won't be this year. And so if that's something you can do, if you can help be here on Saturday on the 26th to help set up for the picnic, please do that. It's only about three hours. We're here at 9. We leave by noon. If we have 20 people, we'll leave in an hour. I mean, that's, that's the way it goes. It's, it's quick and it's easy. So please, please put that on your schedule. See if you can be here for that. Uh, a lot has happened 
and uh, not the least of which few of our uh, family members <coughs> have had some different opportunity in, uh, uh, well, in their life and, and, and things. We talked a little bit about the Doms <coughs> last week or the week before, uh, and also uh, want to mention this week, I thought I had some more time, apparently I don't, I uh, wanted to mention this week also, uh, brothers and sisters Shannon and Betsy and Sergeant Woodruffs, uh, they're back there, they're going to be heading out uh, out west, and they're going to be heading out there permanently for some uh, great opportunities out there, something they've planned for a long time, long time, and it's about that time. And so while that's always a, a good and exciting thing, uh, for the rest of us, we can feel kind of sad once in a while or, or deflated uh, when someone we love and we care about kind of moves away. Um, I, if that's not enough guilt, I can, I can ratchet it up. That's fine. It's, we can keep doing that. Uh, and, uh, but they're certainly going to be, uh, going to be missed, but it's, it's something they've been looking forward to for quite a while. And uh, they'll be doing that very soon. This is, uh, this is your last Sunday here. Is that correct? I think this is it, right? All right. Okay, we can have the snow cone maker. All right, all right. Yeah, that's, well, that makes all of this just easy <laughs> at that point. You know what? I was really concerned, uh, but we get to keep the snow cone maker, so that should be just fine. <clears throat> Anybody else want to move and leave some stuff here, huh? We, we, could, we could do that. Uh, church, knowledge is, you've probably heard people say knowledge is power. Uh, and I think that there's some truth to that. But I also think that knowledge is peace. Knowledge is the understanding of who God is, who we are what Scripture says about this life, and how we get, it's an opportunity, how we get to conduct our lives in accordance with the desire of God and the character of God. And if we don't know, then we don't know. If we don't know, then we don't know. It, it, it is an opportunity to know and to study and to learn and apply the Word of God in our lives. It changes who we are. It changes how we see people around us. It changes how we see reality. We actually have our eyes open to reality. And there are many things in Scripture that can change not only your life, but fascinate you in the process. You gain knowledge, you gain understanding, and by that you gain wisdom, skillful living in life. If, if you are one, I'll just come out and say it. If you're one who gains your scriptural understanding uh, for 30 minutes once a week, you do not know scripture. Okay? You don't know the half of it. But if you are one who realizes that the word is alive and active, moving in and through, convicting the heart, changing the life, study, knowledge, application, practice of the character of Jesus, then you're beginning to understand what the Word is about. Then you're beginning to understand. You know, that was something we read in Hebrews last week. The writer of Hebrews says, there is so much more 
there is so much more I want to talk to you about. There's so much more I want to show you and explain. But what does the writer say? He says, but you're, you're no longer even trying to understand. And so we can't go into some of these fascinating things about your life, about the cosmos in which we live. Because we have a chance, an opportunity, a responsibility to be in the Word of God and know it and to understand it. The Word of God can be trusted. It can be trusted. And I'll tell you something, there are many people who write about the Word of God. Many of those things can be trusted to a point. There are many people who teach about the Word of God, and many of those things can be trusted to a point. But the Word itself can be trusted from the very beginning to the very end, all in and through and about your life and the life of creation around you because the Bible, the Word, is infallible. It is infallible. Not only is it infallible, it is the only promised work to be infallible for all time throughout history. You see, the Bible wasn't written to you. The Bible wasn't written to me. It was written for you and for me, but it was written to people years ago who were the original audiences. Every letter we read is occasional in the epistles. But because it's written for us, it is designed for us to trust, believe, apply, understand, and be changed. But only we can take that opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the love that you've granted us through the Word. We thank you, Father, that, uh, that you can be trusted. Your very character, your very nature can be trusted. And I know that. I also know that you and I, we, we butt heads a lot. But I still trust you. I trust your Word. I know that it's right and it's good. Father, I, I want to know more. I want us to know more and to be assured of your honesty, of your forthrightness when you describe to us your character and who you are and what you are. Open our eyes today, Father, to trust the infallibility, the inerrancy of your eternal word. In Jesus' name, amen. Eternal word. Eternal word. Sometimes we have the uh, assumption, erroneous assumption, that the Bible was written or the Word of God was written, laid down in times throughout linear history. And while the actual physical recording for you and I was done that way, the Word of God is a description of His very character and His very nature. And so the Word of God is eternal. The Word of God has been around as long as God has been around, and that's always. Now, there are places and parts, there was a time in what you and I consider history that He allowed us to understand some of that eternal Word. But the Word is as eternal as God is. We know this because God describes Himself by describing His Word. I've got this later on in my message, so it's not going to be on your screen. 
In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What you have, whether it's in your hands or whether it's on a screen, is something that has been a gift to mankind, but is eternal and is made for you and I to understand it. And this Word, because it's eternal, is inerrant. It is fully true. There is no contradiction in it. There are no mistakes by it. But it often takes, church, more than a cursory glance to see and to understand what this inerrancy really means and why it is so. The Bible itself claims perfection. The Bible claims perfection. We've already seen one example where the Bible claims perfection, and it claims it numerous times, both specifically and implicitly. Psalm 118, your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Psalm 12, and the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. There's, there's no wiggle room in the prophet's description of imperfection or allowance for imperfection in the Word of God. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. This is, I think this is on your bulletin. Refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And these are just a few examples of the Bible specifically telling us, of God's Word specifically telling us that it is perfect. But there are other implicit ways of doing it, and there are other hints, I guess, if you will, in Scripture. You've heard this one many times, at least if you've been a part of this body, 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed, all of it. Not a part of it, not the things we like and, 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 and not the things that we don't like or the things that we understand and, and not the things that we don't understand. The old stuff, the new stuff, the middle stuff, the prophets, the miracles, all Scripture, all of it is God-breathed. You ever skip over stuff? I do. All right, I'm just laying this out there on a regular basis. I don't necessarily study the table of nations in Scripture, or everything about the Levitical law, or the list of all the names in Chronicles. I just, you know, there's, there's times. But every piece of that, every piece of that is designed, given, directed, breathed out by God Himself. <clears throat> now, if we do not care, nor believe in the power and supremacy and omniscience of God, then we should not care about the Word or believe the Word or respond to the Word. But if we believe in one, you must believe in the other. It does not allow you to divide God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Teaching we like. Rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, sometimes we balk at, don't we? And yes, it's there. And it's a part of the application of the Word of God. Verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're going to talk about that part of that Scripture next week when we <clears throat> discuss the sufficiency of the light. But probably my favorite passage 
that talks about the perfection, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the Word of God is this from 2 Peter chapter 1. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as they were carried along by God Himself. This is what they laid down. These were the things that they spoke. These were the things that they wrote. And I don't want you to get too, too narrow on your vision of prophet or prophecy. Remember, that's just not, that's not somebody, that's not a fortune teller. That's not somebody who just tells the future, right? That is one who speaks for God. That's what a prophet is. And so your authors, your human beings who penned, these are prophets that lay out the Holy Scripture, always being carried along and directed and guided by God Himself. You know this, to be inerrant is from free from error, to be free from error, infallibility of Scripture. Listen closely, church, the manuscripts, the writings of those who originally penned Scripture under the direction of God are true, they are honest, they are trustworthy, they are without contradiction, and they are applicable, applicable to you and me. Now, sometimes they're applicable in certain days, in certain ways, in certain times of life, and sometimes they're applicable in other ways in certain days and times of life, but they are applicable to your life and mine. You know, even the instruments themselves, the instruments that God used in order to lay it out in a written form, the instruments that God used understood the importance of Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, you have Paul writing to Timothy, all right? Paul's writing to his student, Timothy. <clears throat> he says this, <clears throat> the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Look at verse 18. For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Now, he is quoting and he is applying Scripture in this letter to Timothy. What we find, though, is do not muzzle an ox while treading out the grain. That is from Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, the, the, the Pentateuch, these, these writings that were there during the time of Paul, and he got to know them and understand them and memorize them in his life. But he is also referring to Scripture when he says the worker deserves his wages. This was recorded, that line was recorded by Luke from a, the teaching of Jesus, and that's the only place we find that. Now, think about this. Luke and Paul were partners in their ministry, walking along together. Luke was a chronicler of Paul's work. And yet, as he's writing, think about this way, in real time, in real time, Paul knew that what Luke was writing down was, in fact, eternal Scripture and eternal Word. That's incredible to me. Now, he has an account of Jesus' ministry, but of course, then he works with and travels with Paul as he goes about his different missionary journeys. So, even Paul, the instrument, one of the instruments being used, realized in the moment that these were sacred and that they were infallible and that they were special. Wonderful things we see from this. Jesus Himself said this in John chapter 14 as He's talking to His disciples he says, all of this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. That is supernatural, supernatural reminding, so that the instruments used would be completely true and accurate, that they would not make the mistake when they are writing their manuscripts and sending out their letters, sending out these different uh, accounts to various churches that would be established. The point is this, church. <clears throat> God created everything that we see. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the stars. He created the, the little bugs on the ground. He created you. He created me. He created all the inner workings of your, of your body and of this life. He created the various atoms that put everything together. He has its times. He has its ways. He has it such that it does not come crashing down, the very power of Jesus Christ holding together all things. The God who does that, church, is perfectly capable of writing a book. Perfectly capable of writing a book. There's people who write books today, and trust me, they are not capable of writing a book. I've read some of those. Well, I've read halfway through some of those, right? The God who created everything that you see is perfectly capable of writing a book. And not only that, He's perfectly capable of writing a perfect book. See, this is why we see at the very beginning of God's Word, in the beginning, God created. Because if we don't believe that, if we don't care about that, then none of the rest of it makes sense anyway. Why should we believe it? Why should we put our hope and our trust on the things that are said in Scripture? But if we believe that in the beginning God created you, me, everything we saw, and then God says, I'm able to write a book, and it's perfect, I can believe that too. Because I look at the perfection of His creation. <clears throat> God created, <clears throat> excuse me, a perfect book. So, when we ask the question, <clears throat> does the Bible have a mistake? We're really asking the question, can God make a mistake? Can God make a mistake? If the Bible contains errors, then God is not omniscient, capable of knowing everything, and He's, he's capable of making errors Himself if it's inaccurate. The Bible contains, if it contains misinformation, this is not the God of truth. It's the God of lies. It's the God of chance. It's the God of trying really, really hard instead of the God of perfection. He is not truthful but a liar if the Bible contains misinformation. You see, God is the God of order and understanding and wisdom. He is not the God of confusion. If the Bible contains contradictions, then God is the author of confusion. In other words, think of it this way. If biblical inerrancy is not true, then God is not God. God is not God. The two go together. The two are one. But you may ask about apparent mistakes that you've seen in Scripture, that you've come across in your writing, in your, in your reading, and in your study. I've come across a lot. I've come across things that I'll read, and then I'll go back and read them again, and I'll say, wait a minute, this isn't making sense, or this doesn't line up, or, or something's missing over here. I mean, there's, there's just a lot of these things throughout Scripture, and you notice more and more as you get into them and begin to understand what they are. 
And, and you may notice, I'll, I'll give you some examples uh, that you might have seen as you're reading through Scripture. Uh, numbers and totals sometimes don't add up in various translations of Scripture. You might have seen that at one point or another. Matter of fact, about two weeks ago, I had, an, I had a great discussion uh, with a sister in the church uh, talking about this very thing. And it was so, it was, it, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, but I had another appointment, and so we really didn't, we only spoke for about 20 minutes, maybe a half hour, uh, but I really enjoyed our conversation. And she was doing the very thing that we needed to do. She came across a number, or maybe it was a count, or something like that, and she said, look, these two things are not adding up. One is recorded this way, another is recorded this way, and then she asked about it. She said, why is this so? In other words, she sought the knowledge and the understanding, because she knew that the Bible was inerrant, so how could these things be? Help me to see, help me to understand. It was great. I wish we could have talked more about it. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. Uncertainty, sometimes, as do the original manuscripts' writings in various translations. You're going to find that in your Bible. We'll point that out here in just a minute. Verses. Verse, anybody got the NIV? Anybody have the, who uses the NIV? You guys, New International Version? Okay, all right. I want you to, while we're sitting here, you can look up Acts chapter 8 and just read verse 37. For, read verse 37, if you have the NIV. Verses missing. You don't actually have to do that because you're going to be looking the whole time, and you're not going to find it. Okay? You're not going to find it. You're going to find verse 36. You're going to find verse 38, but you're not going to find verse 37. It's not there. Uh, verses missing, passages seem to be missing. And of course, the big one that we, I hear all the time, why does it seem like there is a different God in the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament? Why is there a God of wrath and judgment? And all of this bad stuff seems to be happening in the Old Testament. Whereas in the New Testament, we get a God that's full of grace and compassion and, and mercy, and love and all these wonderful things. I hear that a lot, and it can cause us, if we don't know any better, to think that there are two halves of the Scripture, but there is one Word of God. I think in some of these instances, we help ourselves if we take the mentality of Augustine, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute. But the books of the Bible, as they were originally written, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are 100% true, inerrant, accurate, authoritative. However... There is no biblical promise. It's going to shake your world. You ready for it? There is no biblical promise that copies of the original manuscript would be equally free from errors. Think about it this way. Every copy that was ever made of Scripture was not re-inspired. It was not re-inspired. It was inspired by those original authors, God moving through the heart, the mind, even the pen. But then we make copies of it. God did not take away the humanity of every person that copied a letter. I mean, this is what Paul did. Paul wrote a letter. And he said, by the way, send this to eight different churches. Okay, well, we'll make copies of it and we'll send it out. But Paul's inspiration... Paul's inspiration guided, directed by the Holy Spirit itself. The Bible is copied thousands of times over thousands of years. 
and some copyist errors are likely to have occurred. What did I say at the very beginning of this message? The inerrancy of Scripture requires more than just a cursory glance. It requires reading, studying, asking the questions of things that don't seem to add up. You need to do this and I need to do this. Otherwise, if you don't ask the questions of clarification, we can be tempted to think that there's a mistake here and a mistake there. Eventually, we get tempted to throw the whole thing out. We have a responsibility to inquire after those things. You know, in 1631, there was, a, there was a translation that went out all over the world. It was a King James translation. They left out the word not in uh, the Ten Commandments. And what they had, what they wound, out, wound up with was, thou shalt commit adultery. And it went everywhere. It was all over the place. And eventually, they were able to recall most of them. Who knows if they were able to ever recall all of them. And they had those destroyed and they redid it. Uh, many different, uh, here we go, I like this, in 1801. It's supposed to read, let the children first be filled. And the translation was, let the children first be killed. Small but important letter, okay? In the translation, in the copies of these various words. And sometimes these things are located, sometimes they are known, sometimes they are not. In Psalm 119, princes have persecuted me. But in 1702, it was printers have persecuted me. I'll tell you what, if you work with this printer in here sometimes, you may like that translation of Scripture. We have these things when it comes to copious errors. God tells us through Paul in both Timothy and Titus not to argue over trivial matters. That means that there are important issues that take our time and our concentration. And there are less important issues, even non-important issues. But what about what we may refer to as trivial discrepancies? Trivial discrepancies. What about numbers and measurements that don't seem to add up or have different numbers and measurements throughout Scripture? Sometimes they too could be attributed to a copyist error. I like 2 Samuel chapter 8. This is a great example of this, okay? <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 8. Now, this is in the New King James Version, I think. New King James Version. Okay, this is not in the NIV. This is in the New King James. It says this, David took from him, that is the king of Zobah, 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. David also hamstrung the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. Now, you could see that uh, on your screen. 700. Now, uh, we'll go to 1 Chronicles chapter 18. This is also in the New King James Version. 1 Chronicles chapter 18, David took from him 1,000 chariots, not 700 horsemen, but 7,000 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. There you go. There's a great example. In the first one, it's talking about the same thing, telling the same story. All right, he took from him 700 horsemen, and in the retelling of it, he took from him 7,000. Now, if we understand <clears throat> the reality of the copies of Scripture and the fact that we have a responsibility to ask and to seek, to learn and to know, then we can see a discrepancy like this, and we can try to figure out why it must, must, might be. 
But there are those who simply use these types of things as an excuse. Well, clearly, the Bible isn't perfect. No, the Bible is perfect. The Bible is without error, but that same inspiration was never promised to every copy that was ever made. Now, MacArthur attributes this to a copyist error, but it can also be attributed to an uncertainty in the original manuscript. Think of it this way. The original manuscript is there, but there's a smudge on the page. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the best that we can in this number. Why? Because this is not doctrine. This is not theology. This is doing their best to write down the most accurate count that they have and to copy that correctly. Matter of fact, if you read the NIV, the NIV in 2 Samuel 8 says this, David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but 100 chariot horses. And if you have the book of the NIV at the bottom of the page, you're going to say, by the way, the Septuagint says that it's not 700 or 7,000, it's 1,700. And it'll say that at the bottom of your page. By the way, if you're reading the NIV Scripture, all that stuff at the bottom of the page is a part of the Word. That is a part of this, okay? So if you're reading through and you're studying through, read these things as well, because what did the NIV do? They looked at these translations and they said, from as far back as we can remember, they either put 700 or 7,000. And so we're going to have something like that in this translation because we want to be as accurate as possible. But because there is a discrepancy, we're going to tell the reader at the bottom of that page, look, we're doing the most accurate thing that we can here. And if that number's off by 1,000 or if it's off by 6,000, we recognize that because the original manuscripts are unclear on that number. Don't use stuff like that to just throw away the inerrancy, the infallibility, the absolute direct truth of the Word of God. These things happen often. Another example, you might have been searching for Acts chapter 8, verse 37, if you're in the NIV. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, he's talking to the Ethiopian about baptism you may be baptized. He answered him, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That won't be on your screen. But you have that in the, in the King James and the New King James. But in the NIV, you don't have that at all. You don't have verse 37, but you will have verse 37 at the bottom of the page. Why? Same reason. Almost every translation the NIV translators have said is in here. But through careful study, through increased knowledge through increased discovery. The oldest manuscripts that we have found actually don't have that line, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to put that here at the bottom of the page to explain to you why it's not, and you study on that. You study it. Guys, nothing's hidden from anybody here. None of these guys are trying to hide anything. They're doing the very best that they can, copy after copy after copy after copy after copy of the Word. The Word itself is infallible, though. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is always the Christ, the Son of the living God. Many, many years, 
that verse was a part of the copy of Scripture as it is today, but that continued research says the oldest manuscripts don't have it. So they take it out and put it at the bottom of the page. They don't do away with it, but they tell you, here are some of the translation issues. You'll find this in John chapter 8, 1 through 11. You'll find it in Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20. All of these things you're going to see in Scripture. John chapter 8 is the story of the adulterous woman. And you'll find, especially the NIV, and you'll find it also in some versions of the New King James. Hey, by the way, when we find the oldest accounts of the, the description, oldest accounts of Jesus' teaching, this section's actually not there. It's in a lot of other accounts, but the very, very oldest, it's not there. So we're just going to let you know that before we write this down. Augustine says this, he grants that his own writings and all writings since apostolic times may contain error. But, he says, the the authoritative canonical books of the Old and New Testaments are different. Look, he says, if we are perplexed by an apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable for us to say that the author of the book is mistaken because the author of the book is God. But either the manuscript is faulty or the translation is wrong, or, more to the point, I have simply not yet understood. I have simply not yet understood. And this is the thrust of the message for you and me. We don't throw away the infallibility of Scripture. We make sure, and and nobody can do this for you. You understand that, right? There is no teacher in the world, no teacher that exists or have ever existed that can do that for a person. The person has to say, I'm going to seek and to understand. Now I'm going to ask my teacher questions maybe in that, in that search. But we need to understand before we would say that there's a contradiction, and we can never say that the author is wrong. In consequence, the state of peculiarities of scriptural writings, we are bound to receive as true whatever the canon shows to have been said by even one prophet or an apostle, or an evangelist. Otherwise, no, not a single page will be left for the guidance of human fallibility. So we find this throughout Scripture. I knew I wasn't going to get through this whole thing. Old Testament versus New Testament God. Here's my advice. If you think there are two distinct characters, or characteristics, or personalities of God in the Old Testament and New Testament, I hear this all the time. Here's my advice. Read the whole thing. Read the whole thing. Church, there's no way any of us can take a piece of Scripture or a part and assume that we have the full picture. And this is why I told you at the very beginning of the message that if your knowledge of Scripture is for 30 minutes once a week, you don't know Scripture because that's precisely what preachers do. They take a piece of Scripture, and they teach about that. Now, they teach it in context. They teach it accurately if they're, you know, upright, if they're morally true. But it's impossible for us to see the whole picture. And furthermore, it's impossible for us to talk about the whole picture on Sunday mornings. I'm perfectly happy to. If you've got a few hours and you want to stick around... Not a single hand. It's all right. 
read the whole thing. As a matter of fact, if I didn't know better, thankfully I do, if I didn't know better, I wouldn't even call God a judgment, judgmental, wrathful, uh, you know, dangerous, mean sometimes God in the Old Testament and not the New. I would almost flip those, actually. I would almost flip them. Read the whole thing. You see, in the Old Testament, we find compassion, patience, love, sacrifice. We find things in the Old Testament that Jesus personifies in the New over and over and over and over again. What does Jesus say? <clears throat> the best merchants, they don't just bring out the new stuff. They bring out the old and the new. The old and the new. Read the whole thing. The Bible is to be taken or rejected, church, as a whole. That's why understanding and believing in the infallibility of Scripture is so important. We're talking about knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, but we're also talking about a description of the character of God. God himself is not divided. We cannot divide his word. If we throw out one, we throw it all out. It is much better for us to direct our search with the mentality of, I do not yet fully understand. I just don't yet fully understand. As I've mentioned before, you and I suffer from the same problem incomplete sanctification. Incomplete sanctification. We are in the process of being purified. We're just not complete yet. Some of you are way not complete yet. We're not complete yet, and so even our understanding is incomplete. But sanctification, by its very design, requires that we participate we participate, which is the understanding and the knowledge and the peace that comes through the knowledge of Scripture. I don't lay awake at night wondering about the discrepancies in Scripture. And why? Because I have the knowledge behind everything that I've studied. If we don't pursue those things in our own reading, our own application, and asking of questions, then we have a heart that's filled with unrest and questions about the infallibility of the Word of God. It takes away your peace. It takes away your peace. In the beginning, God created everything. In the beginning was His Word. It is as eternal and perfect as God Himself is. God never contradicts it in His command. So if there's a command of God or from God or by God in our lives, you're going to find the exact same thing written in the pages. Don't get tripped up if one copyist spells it a little different than another one. The truth, the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture is eternal. And it is also all that we need, all that we need to pursue the life of Christ. We're going to talk about this next week. If I can believe that there's no mistakes, I can believe that it's inerrant, can I believe that this is all it takes? Or must there be some other writing or some other philosophy that I have to add to my life? It's an incredible warning at the very end of the Bible. And some people say that applies to the revelation of Christ. I don't think so. I think that applies to every 
everything that's put together in the canonical Word of God, <clears throat> the warning is this. Don't ever add to this. Don't ever take away from it. Don't ever add to it. Don't ever take away from it. We'll talk about the sufficiency of the light next week. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the trust that we have in the inerrancy of your word. Father, we know that, that people make mistakes. We, we acknowledge that. But Father, help us to learn, to seek, to read, and to ask so that we get that peace that you have promised, that peace, that calm of our heart and our mind, that everything here can be trusted clear to the very end. Our lives, Father, are based upon this. Help us to apply it, to realize the power that it actually has in our lives, to see it, to want to share this incredible change in power that we see. I thank you, Father, that you have given us something incredibly special. You've given us your word, and not only your word that we must try to memorize, but your word that you have deigned to actually write down. I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing.
up your voice how great and how great is our God sing with me how great is our God and all will see how great how great is our God the Bible is a fascinating thing 66 books together. Well, good morning. Um, a, lot, uh, a lot going on. Uh, this, this week, I thought I had a little bit more time for this, and so I didn't mention it last week, but um, uh, this Sunday was, was, because they were here first service, was uh, Betsy and Shannon's last Sunday with us. Uh, Shannon and Sergeant and Betsy, they have some great opportunities out west that they've been actually planning for some time. And it's, it's crazy how it's just, the way things developed, it's right on the heels also of uh, the Doms taking some, some great, you know, opportunities down in Tennessee. Um, so that's, that's it. I wanted to let you know about that. I, I, the original plan, I think, was a little bit later on, like in the spring of next year, but, but things developed quickly, um, and I wanted a little bit more time with them, um, with all of them, the Doms and the uh, Woodruffs, but this was, this was their last. If you need to get a hope, you want to call them, say hi, um, and you don't have their number, by all means, let me know. And we'll get, uh, we'll get that squared away. So, good things. They're, they're good things. Good things in their life, you know, as far as the, the opportunities that, that they have, both families. But it's kind of sad for us. Um, at least me, anyway. And I know others. I kind of felt these announcements with both of those families kind of came right one after the other. And I got a little deflated with one and then completely deflated with the other. Um, I tried to make all of them feel as guilty as I possibly could, but <laughs> they, they left. You know, that's the way it goes. Um, ben has already mentioned to you that there are students away this week, uh, and you, you, you should, you need to, we need to remember them and pray for them uh, while they're away. So please make sure you do that. Uh, some other things I want you to bear in mind as we go through this month. Uh, I will be here... Uh, we will be here, Ashley and Sam and I, next Sunday, and I'll, I'll preach next Sunday. We're going to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, but the Sunday after that, Glenn Shady gets to speak. He gets to update you on their mission, French Christian Mission, Glenn and Jessica. If you've never heard him speak, I really I encourage you to be here. Let's just see. I'm getting some nods already. You ought to be here. 
uh, he's, first of all, he's very good uh, at just conveying the information, but also your eyes are open to things that you didn't even know existed, some of the stuff that, uh, that they do and they deal with and they minister to. So on the 20th, Glenn Shady is going to be speaking, and uh, so make sure you're here for that. On the uh, following Sunday is the 27th, and that is Student Sunday, and I'm excited about that. I'm very, very excited to, to witness that, to be a part of that, but I'm not real sure we're going to be here. Um, that is, we're scheduled to come back from out west the day before. That's cutting it close. I mean, that's cutting it real close. Uh, but fortunately, the kids are running the, the, the show. You know, they're, they're running the service. Uh, Cody is going to be doing that, and they're going to participate in teaching and in worship. They're going to be participating in all kinds of, uh, uh, just, just the whole service. And uh, well, it's going to be exciting. I just, I, I like that stuff. So be here for that also. That's also Picnic Sunday. And we're going to have one service, one service, and then we're just going to make a day of it and have a, have a fun time for our picnic. If you're here, be there, right? It's just a fun time. Um, the day before that, which is the 26th, is when we set up for the picnic. This is the first year in a long time uh, that I'm not going to be here for that. Uh, many people have helped with that, and they know the routine. But particularly this year, please, on the 26th, it usually takes about three hours. If you can be here from 9 to 12, just set stuff up um, uh, in the back. We'll get, we'll, you guys will get all that stuff taken care of, okay? So please keep that in mind as we, uh, as we move forward. Um, study. Knowledge. You ever heard knowledge is power? You ever heard somebody say that knowledge is power? Yeah. Well, knowledge is peace as well. Peace. It opens our eyes to the reality of God's Word. And if you open your eyes to the reality of God's Word, then you open your eyes to reality. You see, there are many people, unfortunately, sadly, throughout time, who have gone their entire lives, their entire existence with a veil covering their eyes, never being able to see who God is, what God is, and if you don't know who God is and what God is, you don't know who you are, and you don't know what you are. Unfortunately, many people miss that. It opens up all kinds of things when we study, know, understand, and apply the Word. I mean, even our worship, we just sang, um, what was the line we just sang? Clothed in rainbows. Now, I, I sang that, right? I'm thinking, all right, I know that. Anybody else? Just curious. See, it's from, it's a, that's, a, that's a depiction of Christ from Revelation. It, the more we know, the more we study and apply, it, 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 it broadens what we see and what we can experience and how we see what God wants for us in our lives. And if we do that, we begin to understand ourselves even better. We do that through Scripture, through the eternal Word of God. This is how the Word of God is described, eternal. Sometimes we think that the Word of God is something that was put together later on in what we consider linear time or linear history. But that's not the way the Word is actually described. It's not the way it describes itself. The Word is eternal. In fact, God even uses the Word to describe what and who He is. In, in John, this won't be on your screen, I've got this later on, but He says, in the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, describing this eternal character both in the written Word and in the living Word. The Word of God has been around as long as God's been around, which is always, always. And it's a description of, it's a reflection of the character, the nature of the very God that created you and me and the universe the very God who gives you meaning, value, and purpose. The Word of God is eternal. Therefore, it is without error. Without error. Inerrant, infallible Word of God. But it often takes more than just a cursory glance to see and understand uh, what this means and why it is so when we look at the inerrancy of the Word of God. The Bible itself claims perfection. It claims perfection multiple places and multiple times throughout itself, numerous times, both specifically and implicitly. All right, now I'm just going to read just three of three specific times. Uh, Psalm 118, your word, Lord, is eternal. That is the perfection of the word. It stands firm in the heavens. Psalm chapter 12, the words of the Lord are flawless like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Psalm 19, this might be on your, I think this one's on your bulletin. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And these are just a few, just a couple of the, the, the word itself specifically telling us that it is perfect. But there are other hints and there are other implicit ways that the Scripture tells us this. First, or, Second Timothy chapter 3, if you've been a part of this body and this teaching for any length of time, you've probably heard this before. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful. All. There's, there's no allowance for a part of it or some of it or the things we like being God-breathed and the things we don't like not being God-breathed the things we agree to, right? There are many things in Scripture that I read. Are you like me? You read things in Scripture, you read it, you say, man, I really wish it didn't say that because that's difficult because of whatever it is, my pride, my fear, whatever it might be. All of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. We like that part. Rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We're going to talk about what that means next week when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. But probably my favorite one is this. Second Peter chapter 1 says this, Above all, he says, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I don't want us to get, don't get, don't get our, make our vision too small when we say the word prophet. Remember, prophets are not fortune tellers, all right? They're, they're not telling the future. A prophet is one who speaks the words, one who speaks for God. That's what a prophet is. And so when Peter talks about this, he's talking about the eternal word, everybody who is a part of laying out and laying down this eternal Word of God for you and me. He says it was never, one piece of it was in human will. It was always designed, laid out, carried along, overseen by, ordained by 
God Himself. This is His Word. This is not ours. Free from error, the infallibility. Now look, the manuscripts, the writings of those, listen carefully, the writings of those who originally penned Scripture under the direction of God is true, it is honest, it is trustworthy, and is without contradiction. Furthermore, it's applicable. It's applicable to everybody who exists or everybody who ever existed or everybody who will exist. Now, the Bible was written for you and me. It was not written to you and me. It was written to those who received what the prophets were saying, what the prophets were writing in that moment and in that time. Every letter from Paul is occasional. But it's still written for all of humanity, including you, including me, which means it's applicable and meant to be applicable for all of us. Even the instruments themselves, while they were penning, while they were recording, while they were being used by the Holy Scripture, or used by the Holy Spirit to lay out Scripture, even they grasped and understood the significance of it. You know, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says this, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially uh, whose work is preaching and teaching. Look at verse 18, for Scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves its wages. Now, Paul here is quoting two pieces of Scripture. Number one, he's quoting Deuteronomy. We can, we can expect Paul to quote Deuteronomy and call it Scripture. He was fully aware of the first five books of the law. He was aware of the Pentateuch. He committed these things to memory, actually. So he's quoting that when he says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. However, the words, the worker deserves his wages, if ascribed to Scripture, only come from the mouth of Jesus recorded by Luke. Now, here's the thing. Luke and Paul were traveling partners. They worked together. Paul, in essence, is understanding in real time, in real time, the significance of what is being recorded and written down and directed by the Holy Spirit, even referring to it as Scripture. That's powerful. That's powerful. And sure enough, it remains true throughout the days and throughout the times and throughout the years as we read it in our Bibles today. Quoting even his traveling partner, Jesus says this in John chapter 14, as he's talking to his apostles, he says, look, all this I have spoken while still with you. He was giving them some, some teaching and some advice. He says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Promise from Christ when they go forth and record and write and teach and dispense the incredible Word of God. The promise that it's going to be directed by the perfect Holy Spirit. The point is this. The God that created everything that you see the God that put the stars in the sky and the planets in motion. The, guy that rem the God that remembers to put the little toe where it's supposed to be on a baby. I just fascinate me. Ever since Sam was born, I've just been fascinated with the little toe on the foot of a little baby because I would forget it. And God puts it there exactly where it's supposed to be. The smallest pig, right? That's where it is. 
the God that puts together the atoms in their forms and without crashing into one another and making a mess, the God who has done all of this is perfectly capable of writing a book, okay? And not only is he perfectly capable of writing a book, he's perfectly capable of writing a perfect book. When he works through the submission of the Holy Spirit and the minds and hearts of the instruments that he's using. He's perfectly capable. There's people today writing books, and they're not capable of writing books. <laughs> You've probably read half of some of those, right? Read the back cover of that one, tossed it, and kept going. God can write a book, and he writes a perfect one. It is not allowable for us to say that the author is mistaken if we come across something that seems to contradict or something that we don't know or understand or that we don't like. It is allowable and right for us to say, I don't understand this yet. I don't understand this yet. I'll see, I'll show you what I mean. God does not make mistakes. So, if we ask if the Bible has mistakes, we're really asking, can the author make mistakes? And if the Bible contains errors, then God is not omniscient, and He commits errors Himself. If the Bible contains misinformation, then this is not the God of truth, it's the God of lies. God is the, order, uh, God, uh, God is the God of order and understanding and wisdom. He is not the God of chaos and confusion. If the Bible contains contradictions, then God is the author of confusion. In other words, if the Bible is with error, then God is not God. You see, we've talked about this before. In the beginning, God created everything. There's a reason the Bible starts with that. Because if you don't believe that, throw the rest of it out. In the beginning, God started this whole thing. He did all this. And if that's where it begins, I cannot take just God and leave His Word. I've got to take the eternal God and the eternal Word together and everything that follows, whether I fully understand it or not. I have to accept that it is without error if God is who He says He is. But you may ask about apparent mistakes in Scripture. Anybody use the NIV? Anybody use the NIV? I've got the NIV. Anybody actually have their Bibles with them? They're physical. My goodness. Hey, look, I'll tell you what, I don't care what form you use. A lot of people use electronic form. That doesn't make any difference, right? It's the Word. Use it. Anybody got with them the NIV? With them the NIV. Do? Do? All right. All right. All right. Acts chapter 8, verse 37. Go ahead and look that up. If you've got the NIV with you, the NIV, Acts chapter 8, verse 37, I'm going to have you read that aloud. Acts chapter 8, verse 37 in the NIV. And I'll continue and give you a chance to look that up. There are a few issues that we might find throughout Scripture. Things that we think are mistakes. Sometimes numbers and totals don't seem to add up in various translations. Yeah, go ahead. There you go. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Now, is there a verse 36? Probably a verse 36 in your Bible in there. Probably a verse 38 in your Bible too, isn't there? Why is there not a verse 37? Do you, do you have a wrong Bible? Did, did, did you invent that Bible? Did you make it up? Did, uh, yeah. Got that on the clearance rack? All right. And you're going to find that, thanks, Mike, you're going to find that multiple times, different places in Scripture. Is it a mistake? Is it a problem? 
does the Bible, in fact, have errors in it? And if it does, what are we even doing here? I mean, how in the world can we give our lives over to what a fallible thing may say? And you find that multiple times in Scriptures, and you also find numbers and totals that don't add up. You have uncertainty as the original manuscript writings in various translations. You have, um, well, I think one of the biggest things, you have verses missing, of course, but you also have something that I get talked to a lot, and people ask me about this, the big one, law versus grace, it seems like the Old Testament God is a different God than the New Testament God. The Old Testament God seems pretty violent sometimes, and He also seems like He, he likes wrath, and He likes judgment, and He likes, uh, I don't know, he, he likes some difficulty and struggle, and yet we get to the New Testament, and suddenly, apparently, we're worshiping a new God because we talk about love, and we talk about forgiveness and compassion, and all of these wonderful things that we like to hear. How do we reconcile those things? We help ourselves, I think, thinking about this stuff if we take the same, same mentality of Augustine. And I'll, I'll read what he has to say a little bit later. But the books of the Bible, listen, church, as they were originally written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are 100% inerrant, accurate, authoritative, and true. Now, there is no biblical promise, none. This is going to open some of your eyes, all right? There is no biblical promise that copies of the original would be equally inerrant. God does not re-inspire every time someone makes a copy. This happened with Paul all the time. He wrote a letter, sent it to a church. That church made copies of it, sent it out to different churches around the area, particularly in areas of Galatia. That original copy, I don't even know if that's around. Who knows? But they made a copy of that inspired letter, and they sent that out. That promise was not to this copying or the different mistakes we might make. God did not take away the humanity of every person who copied the letter or who copied the Word, nor any person or group of people who take on the task of translation. The Bible has been copied thousands and thousands of times over thousands of years, and some copyist errors have likely, in fact, we know, have occurred. Matter of fact, I, I, <laughs> there's a, a, actually quite a famous story of a Bible a long time ago, 1631 version of the King James, and they left out the word not in, in some of the lists of the Ten Commandments, and what they found was, thou shalt commit adultery. And uh, wildly popular scripture. Uh, no, uh, but they, they found out that, that that was the case, and they recalled as many as they could, but they didn't recall them all. Not all of them. They destroyed them, they, they rewrote them, you know, recopied. That's just one example. I like, uh, I like uh, you know, let children uh, first be filled. This was, this, that's what the scripture, let children first be filled. The translation, let children first be killed. I mean, that's Small but important letter there, right? Recalling all of those things. Some they did, some they didn't. None of these people that made these copies of Scripture, none of them are evil. None of them are deliberately trying to thwart the plan of God. Certainly not if your entire life is devoted as a scribe into translating the Word of God for people. They've devoted their life to Jesus. And yet, sometimes... Some copious errors occur. 
You may find that in different places, uh, in different translations. Thankfully, today we have different methods of checking for errors. And so if there is some sort of error, usually it's corrected or it's made a point to put it inside the Scripture at the bottom of the page as a footnote or so forth. These things happen today quite a bit, and they have to check and recheck. God tells us through Paul in Timothy and in Titus not to argue over trivial matters. That means that there are important issues that take our time and our concentration, and there are less important issues or even non-important issues. But what about what we would refer to as trivial discrepancies? Again, numbers or measurements that don't add up. Sometimes these even can be attributed to a copyist error. Sometimes they can be attributed to being unsure about the original manuscript. Put it this way, they're reading the original manuscript and there's a smudge on the page. I want to do it the best that I can. Great example of this, and there's many examples of this in Scripture for church, 2 Samuel chapter 8. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 8 in the New King James Version says this, David took from him, that's the king of Zobah, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. He was, he was making his march and subduing some of the areas in the Philistine areas. Now, First Chronicles says that same thing, tells that same story. It's a retelling of these things. That's what Chronicles is. It's a retelling of this same story, First Chronicles chapter 18. Now, in 2 Samuel 8, 4, he took 700 horsemen. Now, First Chronicles 18, 4, David took with him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen. And I'm telling you, th- th- things like that, not 700, 7,000, 7,000 here, 700 up there. It's the same story, wrong numbers. And things like that, if we don't gain the knowledge and understanding that we can, it's a potential for causing us to trip. But there is no reason for it. We ascribe this to copyist error, this particular discrepancy. The copyist at first, when he's laying out the first Samuel, he misses a zero, <laughs> essentially is what we would say. Then when they came back through in First Chronicles, they said, no, these numbers don't add up. They're not consistent with what we know and what we believe, so we're going to put the correct number in there, but we're not going to go back and change Scripture. And then at the bottom of your page, certainly if you have the NIV, you probably have a different number. The Septuagint says 1,700. They're copyist errors or unsure about the original manuscript. Do you and I need to give up our faith because they're trying to get the best number? Of course not. Of course not. That's not what this is. It's never meant what that is. never meant to be what that is. It is truly an effort by every person who makes a copy and every person who makes a, a translation and every person as technology and discovery comes to us that these translations get more and more and more accurate in what we would call disputable or trivial discrepancies. Never once is theology, never once is Christian doctrine ever put in any kind of contradictory setting or contradictory terms. As a matter of fact, it is 99% if you look through Scripture, accurate now today than it was in the second century. And all of these changes, all of these little things here and there can be logically followed through. 
And this is why it, why it happens, why these mistakes are there, why these differences are there. Think about that. The Bible was written over the course of 2,000 years by 40 people on three continents in three languages by kings, shepherds, fishermen, businessmen, prophets, and all of it, all of it, all 66 books congruent from the first to the last, never contradicting any command that God has ever made. Church, that's not possible. That's not possible unless there is one author, unless there's one author. Even the translations give us different numbers sometimes between Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, you see. None of these things are things to wring our hands about, but the more knowledge we have, the more peace we have about reading and understanding and realizing that none of these different spellings are a bad punctuation or different numbers, something to trip over in our life. I had a great conversation about two weeks ago with somebody that came in and asked about some numbers in Scripture. And I'm telling you, it was so much fun, uh, but it was short. I had another appointment that day, so we only got to talk for about 20 minutes or, or, or a half hour, and I wish we could have talked longer. But she did the exact right thing. She came across a couple of differences in some measurements, for example, in Scripture. She knows the Bible is inerrant, and so she asked about it. I want to know. I want to be sure, and I want to be certain about all of these things. Because the only thing I can come up with is, if the Bible is true and inerrant, then I must not fully understand yet. And that's a great reaction. And we got to have a wonderful discussion about it. So there are some of those things that you're going to find uh, in Scripture. There are little differences. We've already talked about Acts chapter 8, verse 37. You're going to find the same thing in John 8, 1 through 11. Particularly, uh, you're going to see either... Uh, I like the way the NIV does it because they do it in an italicized version, and they tell you that the oldest manuscripts don't have that story. Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20, you're going to find that as well. Why? Because with continued discovery and the older and older and older manuscripts that they have found, they realize that some of those stories are not in them, but those stories have always been throughout time in the record of the Word of God. So many of these translators put them in there, make sure that they are taught the way they ought to be taught, but they put something at the bottom of the page that says, by the way, just so you know, the oldest manuscripts we've ever found don't actually have this part of the story in there. Nobody's trying to hide this. They say, you need to study. You need to understand. You need to realize and see if anything in here contradicts the Word of God. By the way, if you want to, I've already gone through Mark and John. Nothing in there contradicts anything about Scripture. And I, I encourage you to do it yourself. Wonderful things that we see, but we don't have to be tripped up by them if we know why they're happening. Augustine says this, he grants that his own writings and all writings, since apostolic times may contain errors. But he says, the authoritative canonical books of the Old Testament are different. If we are perplexed by an apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken. But either the manuscript is faulty, we've already talked about that, or the translation is wrong, we've talked about that as well, or I have just not yet understood. In consequence of the distinctive changes, in consequence of the distinctive peculiarities of the sacred scripture, we are bound to receive as true whatever the canon chose to have been said by even one prophet or apostle or evangelist. Otherwise, not a single page will be left for the guidance of human fallibility. 
the Bible rises and falls as one. God is not divided. His Word is not divided. We don't pick and choose. It's not allowed in its own profession of itself. It rises, it falls as a whole. It's either fallible or it's infallible. And if it's fallible anywhere, then you throw out the whole thing. Because there are some incredible claims in the Word of God. Uh, law versus grace, Old Testament God versus New Testament God. Here's the best thing I would tell you. If, because I do answer this question a lot, and I talk about this a lot, but given our limited time here, I will tell you this. If you think there is a different God or a different character of God or a different personality of God in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, my advice is read the whole thing. Read the whole thing. Anybody who comes up with that question is not bad, evil, wrong, none of that stuff. They're searching. They're trying to figure this out. They're trying to understand. They're trying to know. But I also know that chances are they haven't read the whole thing. They haven't read the whole thing. You see the character of God in patience, compassion, kindness, love, forgiveness, generosity throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Yeah? You also see Him carving out a nation in a fallen and dangerous world. You see that as well. But you also see the character and attributes of Jesus Christ throughout the pages, even from the very beginning in Genesis. And then what happens? That God becomes man so that we can know Him even better. And we see this abundance, abundance of love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, forgiveness. But at no point does God take away, at no point does God get rid of Old Testament or New Testament, His judgment, His wrath. His discipline, challenging you and I. Church, read the whole book, and you'll see that there is not a difference, not at all, between an Old Testament God, His character, His personality, and the New Testament God. It's the same one that runs through the pages. Jesus was there at the beginning. We know that everything that's created or ever was created is created through God the Son. It's by His very power that everything is held together. And it's Jesus that is in the, in, the, in the beginning pages, Jesus that is in the end pages. What does Jesus say about understanding the Word of God? What does Jesus say about teaching? He says, the wise merchant brings out the old and the new. The wise merchant brings out the old and the new. Same thing is true in your life. I'll tell you what, if you want to know what the human life is, you want to see the human life, snapshot of the human life, you want to see the gospel message, if you think you can do something, I, don't, I wouldn't recommend this, but if you think you want to read one story and that's it, and it's the whole Bible and it's the gospel message and it's your life and it's the life of everybody you've ever met, read the Exodus story. That's what it is. In bondage by the king of this world, then a prophet is sent Freedom, through the miracles, leading them through the wilderness of life, ultimately to the promised land. It's a story of your life. It's a story of everybody's life. Jesus even called a better Moses in Hebrews. There's no division there. Matter of fact, the rest of Scripture kind of fleshes out this wonderful story of the Exodus. There is the same God that runs through and through. There is nothing contradictory in Scripture. 
when one reads both the Old and New Testament, it becomes evident that God is not different from one testament to another and that God's wrath and His love are revealed in both testaments. You see, at a glance, at picking out a few things, it may appear that you might have a discrepancy there, a mistake there, or two different characters of God in the Old Testament and New Testament. The problem is, and this is what I said at the very beginning, the inerrancy of Scripture requires more than a cursory glance. What do we do when we teach a lesson? What do we do when we preach a sermon? We take out a piece of Scripture and we teach it. Church, if your knowledge and understanding of Scripture, please listen, is 30 minutes once a week, you do not know Scripture. You don't know Scripture. You don't even know very little of Scripture. And if you profess the name of Jesus, that this is the guide of your life, then you don't know yourself. I hope that that's not every person. I hope that you realize that to be a part and in the Word of God reveals things in yourself, about yourself, and about God that can be applied not only as your relationships with other people, but even how you see yourself in reality. What does the writer of Hebrews say? He said, I would love to go into deeper things that you guys don't even know exist, but you're not trying to understand anymore. Things that fascinate and convict and give hope and peace. Knowledge, yeah, it might be power. Church, knowledge is peace. Knowledge is peace. I encourage you to be the reader and an understander of Scripture so that you gain wisdom therefore gaining peace. It's important to believe that the Bible is inerrant. If there be any mistakes, says John Wesley, then there might as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. We are talking about biblical doctrine, Christian doctrine. To suggest that the Bible is in error is to suggest that God is in error. The Bible reflects His character. And again, I started with this, I'll finish with it. God Himself In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You that Your Bible is true, that Your Word is true, and I thank You, Father, that Your Word is eternal. I thank you that it's eternal. It's it's because of that, God, that it helps me to trust the the, the authenticity of it. And Father, there are many things. There are so many. There are many things in your Word that I don't fully understand. But I'm not I'm not satisfied with that. I want to understand more. I want to know more. I want to know more about you and your expectations. I want to know more about myself. I want to have that confidence. I want to have that courage, that strength, that peace that comes with knowing everything about your character and even even your mind that's laid out in your word. And that you would deign to write it down for us, give it to us like this, Father. What a gift. What a gift. What a gift that you have granted every person here. Father, challenge us. Challenge us to know your word. To know your word better tomorrow than we do today to know it better tomorrow than we do today, that we might grow to become more like Jesus. I thank you, Father. 
for your patience with us. What incredible patience when you lay a gift like this in our lap. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing. Splendor of a king Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice All the earth rejoice He wraps himself in light And darkness tries to hide And trembles at his voice trembles at his voice and how great is our God sing with me how great is our God and oh we'll see how great how great is our God in age to age God had three in one, and Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb, the Lion and the Lamb, and how great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God, and all will see how great. Above all names, and you're the name above all names. You are worthy of all praise, and my heart will sing how great is our God. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God, and oh, we'll see how great, how great is our God, and how great is our Well, uh, 